Chapter 19 of No Clue. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. No Clue by James Hay. Chapter 19 Pursuit. Returning from his trip Sunday morning, the detective, after a brief conference with Hendricks, had gone immediately to Mrs. Brace's apartment. She sat now, still and watchful, on the armless rocker by the window, waiting for him to disclose the object of his visit. Except the lifted, faintly interrogating eyebrows, there was nothing in her face indicative of what she thought. He caught himself comparing her to a statue, forever seated on the low-backed, uncomfortable chair, awaiting, without emotion or alteration of feature, the outcome of her evil scheming. Her hardness gave him the impression of something hammered on, beaten into an ugly pattern. Having that imperturbability to overcome, he struck his first blow with surprising directness. "'I'm just back from pursuit,' he said. That was the first speech by either of them since the monosyllabic greeting at the door. He saw that she had prepared herself for such an announcement, but the way she took it reminded him of a door shaken by the impact of a terrific blow. A little shiver, for all her force of repression, moved her from head to foot. "'You are,' she responded, her voice controlled, the hard face untouched by the shock to which her body had responded. "'Yes, I got back half an hour ago.' and except for one of my assistants, you're the first person I've seen. When that drew no comment from her, he added, I want you to remember that later on. He began to whittle. Why? she asked with genuine curiosity after a pause. Because it may be well for you to know that I'm dealing with you alone and fairly. I got all the facts concerning you. Concerning me? Her tone intimated doubt. Now, Mrs. Brace, he exclaimed, disapproving her apparent intention, you're surely not going to pretend ignorance or innocence. She crossed her knees, and putting her left forearm across her body, rested her right elbow in that hand. She began to rock very gently, her posture causing her to lean forward and giving her a look of continual but polite questioning. "'If you want to talk to me,' she said, her voice free of all feeling, "'you'll have to tell me what it's about.' "'All right, I will,' he returned. You'll remember, I take it, my asking you to tell me the meaning of the marks on the flap of the gray envelope. I'll admit I was slow, criminally slow, in coming to the conclusion that pursuit referred to a place rather than an act. But I got it finally, and I found pursuit. Not much left of it now. It's not even a post office. But it's discoverable he continued on a sterner note, and began to shave long, slender chips from his block of wood. I'll give you the highlights. Young Dalton was killed. His murderer made a run for it. 
But you, a young widow then, in whose presence the thing was done, smoothed matters out. You swore it was a matter of self-defense. The result was that after a few half-hearted attempts to locate the fugitive, the pursuit was given up. Very well. But why bring that story here, now? What's its significance? He stared at her in amazement. Her thin, sensitive lips were drawn back at the corners, enough to make her mouth look a trifle wider, and enough to suggest dimly that their motion was the start of a vindictive grimace. Otherwise she was unmoved, unresponsive to the open threat of what he had said. "'Let me finish,' he retorted. "'An unfortunate feature, for you, was that you seemed to have made money out of the tragedy.' In straitened circumstances previously, you began to spend freely, comparatively speaking, a few days after the murderer's disappearance. In fact, bribery was hinted. You had to leave the village. See any significance in that? he concluded with irony. Suppose you explain it, she said, still cool. The significance is in the strengthening of the theory I've had throughout the whole week that's passed since your daughter was killed at Sloanehurst. What's that? She stopped rocking. Her eyes played a fiery tattoo on every feature of his face. Your daughter's death was the unexpected result of your attempts to blackmail young Dalton's murderer. You, being afraid of him, and, not confessing that timidity to Mildred, persuaded her to approach him, in person. "'I? Afraid of him?' she objected, aroused at last. Her brows were lowered, a heavy line above her furtive, swift eyes, her nostrils fluttered nervously. "'Granting your absurd theory,' she continued, "'why should I have feared him?' What had he done except strike to save his own life? You forget, Mrs. Brace, he corrected, that body showed twenty-nine wounds, twenty-eight of them unnecessary, if the first was inflicted in mere self-defense. It was horrible mutilation. So, she ridiculed with obvious effort, you picture him as a butcher. Precisely. And you, having seen to what lengths his murderous fury could take him, were afraid to face him, even after your long, long search had located him again. Let's be sensible, Mrs. Brace. Let's give the facts of this business a hearing. You had come to Washington and located him at last. But after receiving several demands from you, he'd stopped reading your letters, sent them back unopened. Consequently, in order for you to make an appointment with him, he had to be communicated with in a handwriting he didn't know. Hence, your daughter had to write the letter making that appointment a week ago last night. Then, however... What makes you think... Then, however, he concluded, overbearing her with his voice, you hadn't the courage to face him out there in the dark alone. You persuaded Mildred to go in your place. And he killed her. Ha! 
The mocking exclamation sounded as though it had been pounded out of her by a blow upon her back. "'What makes you say that? Where did you get that? Who put that into your head?' She volleyed those questions at him with indescribable rapidity, her lips drawn back from her teeth, her brows straining far up toward the line of her hair. The profound disgust with which he viewed her did not affect her. She darted to and fro in her mind, running about in the waste and tumult of her momentary confusion, seeking the best thing to say, the best policy to adopt, for her own ends. He had had time to determine that much when her gift of self-possession reasserted itself. She forced her lips back to their thin line and steadied herself. He could see the vibrant tautness of her whole body, exemplified in the rigidity with which she held her crossed knees, one crushed upon the other. "'I know, I think, what misled you,' she answered her own question. "'You've talked to Gene Russell, of course. He may have heard—I think he did hear—Mildred and me discussing the mailing of a letter that Friday night.' "'He did,' Hastings said, firmly. "'But he couldn't have heard anything to warrant your theory, Mr. Hastings. "'I merely made fun of her wavering after she'd once said she'd confront Byrne Webster again with her appeal for fair play.' He inspected her with an emotion that was a mingling of incredulity and repugnant wonder. "'It's no use, Mrs. Brace,' he told her. "'Russell didn't see the name of the man to whom the letter was addressed.' I saw him last Sunday afternoon. He told me he took the name for granted, because Mildred had taunted him, saying it went to Webster. As a matter of fact, he wanted to see if Webster was at Sloanehurst, and fastened his eyes for a fleeting glimpse on that word, and on that alone. Besides, there are facts to prove that the letter did not go to Webster. Do you see how your fancied security falls away?' "'Let me think,' she said, her tone flat and impersonal. She was silent, her restless eyes gazing at the wall over his head. He watched her and glanced only at intervals at the wood he was aimlessly shaving. "'Of course,' she said after a while, looking at him with a speculative, deliberating air, "'you've deduced and pieced this together.' You've a woman's intuition, comprehension of motives, feelings. She was silent again. Pieced what together? he asked. It's plain enough, isn't it? You began with your suspicion that my need of money was heavier in my mind than grief at Mildred's death. On that you built up, well, all you've just said. It was more than a suspicion, he corrected. It was knowledge that everything you did after her death was intended to help along your scheme to, well, we'll say, to get money. Still, she persisted shrewdly, you felt the necessity of proving I'd blackmail, if that's the word you want to use. How? he put in quickly. Prove it how? That's why you sent that girl here with the five hundred. I see it now, 
although at the time I didn't. She laughed, a short, bitter note. Perhaps the money, or my need of it, kept me from thinking straight. Well? Of course, she made the admission calmly, as soon as I took the hush money, your theory seemed sound, the whole of it, my motives and identity of the murderer. She was thinking with a concentration so intense that the signs of it resembled physical exertion. Moisture beaded the upper part of her forehead. He could see the muscles of her face respond to the locking of her jaws. "'But there's nothing against me,' she began again, and moved by his expression, qualified, "'nothing that I can be held for in the courts.' "'You've decided that, have you?' "'You'll admit it,' she said. "'There's nothing, there can be nothing, "'to disprove my statement that Dalton's death was provoked. "'I hold the key to that, I alone. "'That being true, I couldn't be prosecuted in pursuit "'as accessory after the fact.' "'Yes,' he agreed, "'that's true.' And here, she concluded, without a hint of triumph, even without a special show of interest, I can't be proceeded against for blackmail. That money, from both of them, was a gift. I hadn't asked for it, much less demanded it. I, she said with an assured arrogance, hadn't got that far. So, you see, Mr. Hastings, I'm far from frightened. He found nothing to say to that shameless but unassailable declaration. Also, he was aware that she entertained and sought solution of a problem, the question of how best to satisfy her implacable determination to make the man pay. That purpose occupied all her mind, now that her money greed was frustrated. It was on this that he had calculated. It explained his going to her before confronting the murderer. He had felt certain that her perverted desire to get even would force her into the strange position of helping him. He broke the silence with a careful attempt to guide her thoughts. But don't fool yourself, Mrs. Brace. You've got out of this all you'll ever get, financially, every cent and you're in an unpleasant situation, an outcast, perhaps. People don't stand for your line of stuff, your behavior. She did not resent that. Making a desperate mental search for the best way to serve her hard self-interest, he thought she was impervious to insult. I know, she said to his immense relief, I've been considering the only remaining point. What's that? The sure way to make him suffer as horribly as possible. He pretended absorption in his carving. Why shouldn't he have provided me with money when I asked it? She demanded at last. The new quality of her speech brought his head up with a jerk. Instead of colorless harshness, it had a warm fury. It was not that she spoke loudly or on a high key, but it had an unbridled, self-indulgent sound. 
he got the impression that she put off all censorship from either her feeling or her expression. That wasn't much to ask, as long as he continued his life of ease, of luxury, of safety, as long as I left out of consideration the debt he couldn't pay, the debt that was impossible of payment. Alien as the thing seemed in connection with her, he grasped it. She thought that she had once loved the man. "'The matter of personal feeling?' he asked. "'Yes. When he left pursuit, he destroyed the better part of me, what you would call the good part.' She said that without sentimentalism, without making it a plea for sympathy. She had better sense, he saw, than to imagine that she could arouse sympathy on that ground. "'And,' she continued with intense malignity, "'what was so monstrous in my asking him for money? "'I asked him for no payment of what he really owes me. "'That's a debt he can't pay. "'My beauty, destroyed, withered and covered over "'with the hard mask of the features you see now. "'My capacity for happiness, dead, "'swallowed up in my long, long devotion "'to my purpose to find him again.' Those things, man as you are, you realize are beyond the scope of payment or repayment. Without rising to a standing position, she leaned so far forward that her weight was all on her feet, and although her figure retained the posture of one seated on a chair, she was in fact independent of support from it, and held herself crouching in front of him, taut a tremor in her limbs because of the strain. Her hands were held out toward him, the tips of her stiffened, half-closed fingers less than a foot from his face. Her brows were drawn so high that the skin of her forehead twitched, as if pulled upward by another's hand. It was with difficulty that he compelled himself to witness the climax of her rage. Only his need of what she knew kept him still. "'Money,' she said, her lean arms in continual motion before him. "'You're right there. I wanted money. I made up my mind I'd have it. It was such a purpose of mine, so strongly grown into my whole being, that even Mildred's death couldn't lessen or dislodge it. And there was more than the want of money in my never letting loose of my intention to find him. He couldn't strip me bare and get away. You've understood me pretty well. You know it was written, on the books, that he and I should come together again, no matter how far he went or how cleverly. And I see now, she gave him her decision, and as she did so, rose to an upright position her hands at her sides going half-shut and open, half-shut and open, as if she made mental pictures of the closing in of her long pursuit. "'I'll say what you want me to say. Confront him. Put me face to face with him, and I'll say the letter went to him. Oh, never fear. I'll say the appropriate thing, and the convincing thing, appropriately convincing.' Her eyes glittered countering his searching glance as she stood over him, her body flung a little forward from the waist, 
her arms busy with their quick, angular gesticulation. "'When?' he asked. "'When will you do that?' "'Now,' she answered instantly. "'Now! Now! Oh, don't look surprised! I've thought of this possibility. My God!' she said with a bitterness that startled him. I've thought of every possibility, every possible crook and quirk of this business. She was struck by his slowness in responding to her offer. But you, she asked, are you sure? Have you the proof? Thanks, he said dryly. You needn't be uneasy about that. Now, if I may do a little telephoning, we'll start. He went a step from her and turned back. "'By the way,' he stipulated, "'that little matter of the five hundred, you needn't refer to it. I mean it will have to be left out. It's not necessary.' "'No, it isn't,' she agreed with perfect indifference. "'And it's spent.' When he had telephoned to Sloanehurst and the sheriff's office, he found her with her hat on, ready to accompany him. As they stepped out of the wallman, she saw the automobile waiting for them. She stopped, a new rage darting from her eyes. He thought she would go back. After a brief hesitation, however, she gave a short, ugly laugh. <laughs> you were as sure as that, were you? She belittled herself. Had the car wait to take me there. By no means, he denied. I hoped you'd go, that's all. That's better, she said, determined to assert her individuality of action. You're not forcing me into this, you know. I'm doing it, after thinking it out to the last detail, for my own satisfaction. End of chapter 19 Recording by Roger Moline